As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This week's episode of the Platinum Sobrero podcast is brought to you by the Coalition for Combined Literature. Do you find yourself wanting to read the classics, but you just don't have the time? Well, worry no more. Our flagship program fuses popular works into an easily digestible format. See what happens when Dr. Seuss and Harper Lee combine for that new tale of Yuletide justice, How Atticus Finch Stole Christmas. And who can forget Edgar Allan Poe and Arthur Miller synthesizing two of their most famous stories and getting Mask of the Red Death of a Salesman. You'll discover all kinds of fantasy lands in books such as Cloud Atlas Shrugged, Gone Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Wheel of Time Machine, and Brave New World According to Garp. Stay tuned for next year when we unveil our first marriage of movies and television with Godzilla's Island, the Coalition for Combined Literature. Patent pending. Fifty-one thousand plus on their feet. Nobody's left to beat the traffic tonight. I guarantee you. Mark gets the sign. The wind and the pitch. Here it is. Swung. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes. 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 Twenty-five lighters on my dresser, yes sir. You know I got to get paid. High five, back to right center, and the Braves have landed. Twenty-five lighters on my dresser, yes sir. You know I got to get paid. Swing and drive, back to right, look into the sun. Twenty-five lighters for my twenty-five folks. Now get ready, this is the Platinum Sombrero Podcast with your hosts, Dylan Short and Adam Doc Herbert. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Platinum Sombrero, brought to you by Armchair All-Americans, in conjunction with our good friends at MyBookie.ag. It is bowl season here for college football. If you need to place a wager to to show off how smart you are to win some money, go to MyBookie.ag. They are the best gambling website on the planet. They've got the best customer service. They have all the best lines up there, the most knowledgeable people. Go up there. Now you can bet MMA as well, so you got some fun fights coming up. John Jones returning against Alexander Gustafson. Go to mybookie.ag and use our promo code BRAVES25, and they will match your initial deposit up to 50%. That means if you deposit $100, they'll give you a free 50 bucks as well. Mybookie.ag. Use our promo code BRAVES25 and let them know where you heard it from. Now, getting into the show today, this is a very special episode. This is something that Doc and I have been talking about getting done and trying to do for, oh, I don't know, since the playoffs started. Our guest today is somebody we've been wanting to talk to for months and months. It is Mike Petriello. Mike, thank you so much for joining us, sir. Hey, guys. How are you? That's very high praise. I, I hope I can live up to it. You know, we, we had to do it because I'm going to jump right into the big thing. When you guys were doing the StatCast broadcast during the playoffs, that was maybe the best baseball announcing I've heard. That was so cool to have, you know, people talking about WABA and, uh, and OBP instead of your traditional batting average. How did that come about? Well, I appreciate that. We had a, a great deal of fun. Um, I was very fortunate to work with Jason Benetti and Eduardo Perez and I think especially fortunate that we got a really good game and that it wasn't like a blowout in the first inning. 
Uh, it came about really earlier in the year because we did the three of us did a uh, home run derby second screen, um, which was pretty fun, but it was also difficult because trying to broadcast a home run derby is like trying to broadcast <laughs> a hurricane. It's not really baseball, you know. Um, so we were we were told like I don't know three weeks or so before the wild card game that this was a possibility. And then, of course, we didn't actually know who would be in the game or where the game would be until, you know, the night before. Uh, so it was a lot of work that night, but it was really it was a lot of fun. And I was blown away by how positive the feedback is. Uh, I don't think Twitter can agree on anything, but they all sort of agreed that this was cool. So I appreciated that. And I hope we get a chance to do more. That was actually going to be my next question. I'm assuming it's in the books to do more of it. My question is going to be, how long do you think it is before we can actually start getting you know, the, the more in-depth type of numbers in the broadcast as we've started to figure out that things like average and just straight-up wins and losses and ERA are not really telling the full story. How much longer do you think it is before we get to get the more in-depth analysis on these broadcasts? Well, I think it depends on which broadcast you're watching. You know, I think I think some guys do a really good job of it already. Like, you know, Jason Benetti with the White Sox tries to pull in some of that. Uh, and you'll see, like, Boo Shambi on Wednesday Night Baseball and a couple of the other local broadcasts. And, you know, you can probably guess who, but there are some teams and broadcasters who are would never, ever talk about anything interesting like this ever. And so <laughs> I, it's it's inconsistent across the, the broadcasts. And the one thing I will say uh, that I understand in their favor is when you are tuning into like a local team's broadcast, you are going to get a wide variety in the audience. You know, you can't expect that it's going to be the stat nerds or anything like that who are tuning in. You've got to be able to keep it interesting for just casual baseball fans and I, that's what we tried to keep in mind too on the espn game is you have to respect that you know you can't turn it into a math lesson like it's still got to be an entertainment product and what i hope we did was able to we were able to show that you can still do that like still make it intelligent and entertaining um i think one of the most interesting pieces of feedback i heard was that it wasn't just about the cool new stuff that we added so much as it was the stuff we just neglected to include like cliches and numbers that don't mean anything whatsoever because the game has changed so much over the last couple of years that really all the job is is being able to explain why teams are doing these weird things. And if you can't do that, then you're probably doing a disservice to your fans. So, you know, to answer your question, when will you see more broadcasts doing that every night? Probably never, I think, because it's like a special thing. Um, but I'm hopeful that more people will see this as something that fans enjoyed and start to incorporate portions of it. The fact that there was the, the regular broadcast quote unquote, and then the next channel up was the Statcast broadcast. I think that that really uh, pronounced how big the differences were. I mean, the the you made a really good point about you have to appeal to the casual baseball fan that that may just happen to tune in and say, oh, there, there's a playoff game right now. But it never pe- people get almost scared of these new stats because they don't understand what they mean. But it the Statcast broadcast never came across as preachy or condescending or anything negative at all. And, and even having the, the visualizations that were, that were part of it were, were so cool as well. Like you would never see some of the, um, some of the camera angle shifts like you were, you were seeing in the Statcast broadcast. So I, I thought it was very, very cool, but I have to ask, was it just the coolest thing in the world calling a playoff game, being in the booth <laughs> for that? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, not only a playoff game, but like at Wrigley Field of all places, you know, it was, yeah. I, def- I definitely took a moment to kind of stop and look around and go, wow, this is a real thing that's going to happen. This, you know, any game would have been cool. Like if it had been, you know, some random Tuesday night game in August between, I don't know, the, the Marlins and the Rangers or whatever, I would have said, this is the coolest thing. And we, 
got to do it at Wrigley Field for a playoff game. And I think, you know, that kind of heightened it for us in the sense that, hey, this is not an experiment game. Like, this is a real game that matters, and that's the most important thing is to to call this game. Um, and that's what I thought was really interesting about it because the game was interesting, and we were able to, you know, ex- explain why, like, why the shift was going on or why this guy was being brought in to hit or what you might expect from the, this next play or something like that. Um, and it's cool because, you know, if you, if you know how to use it in the right way, the data – can really help explain some of these things and, and make it a little more uh, entertaining. And I know that it's not always easy to do that. The data, if you don't live it like every day, it's not necessarily easy to pick that up and understand it. So I certainly understand why some of these guys uh, have a tough time doing it. You've been in the booth for, for many, many years and you know are a million percent better broadcasters than I will ever be. Um, but I do think, you know, the game is changing. If you, if you want to explain why things are happening, you have to understand why teams are doing some of these things. It's one of those things, and you you were brought on because you're one of the most influential people in the whole Statcast type of community. How much uh, how much of a hand did you have in, in actually creating any of the stats, like uh, uh, like the sprint speeds and figuring out some of the home run distances and the park factors and things like that? Um, well, in terms of what you would see on the air that night, like in leaderboards, um, almost all of it, like the, the broadcast team at ESPN, the, the production guys did a fantastic job because like I said, we didn't have much time to prepare since we didn't know who was going to be in it thanks to the, the tiebreaker games. Um, so I threw a whole bunch of stuff at them and they came up with these really amazing graphic packages. Uh, if you mean more big picture, like who creates the stats, it's mostly uh, Tom Tango who you know works with me at MLB.com who is a sabermetric legend um i am fortunate enough to sit right next to him and annoy him with questions pretty much every day and so you know we work together but it's really he is the, the one with the brain power and the mathematical skills that i do not possess and uh fortunately for me I, I have access to him and if i do anything that's vaguely intelligent it generally means i've talked to tom about it first tom tango is an 80 grade name i'm just gonna say <laughs> that now that is that is an all-timer it is an 80 grade name and it's not even his real name as i think most people know <laughs> I would change it. I'm just saying, like, I, I, that would be my full name. That would be my actual name. Uh, which do you have a stat that's your favorite? Everybody in every front office, every GM has their own particular stat that's their fa- that their that's their favorite. Everybody that analyzes baseball has one too. If you had to pick one single statistic, which one is your favorite? Well, that's a fantastic question. Um, if I'm if I'm looking at stat cast things, and I like to look at things that you know you've never been able to measure measure before. Um, so I like catch probability. It's, it's, you know, not necessarily, uh, matching the eye test on every play, but that's sort of the point. Um, it's kind of cool to be able to look at every single play and say, you know, this is how far he had to go. This is the direction. This is how much time he had to get there. Uh, this is how close he was to the wall. And this is how often other guys might've made this play. And then it's cool because you can take those inputs, uh, let's say for a catch that was not made and find a guy who made the exact same opportunity and he made it look easy. And I like looking at those things side by side. It kind of gives you a different perspective on outfield defense. So I have a question as it pertains to some of the players that are subject to all of this information. You know, some some guys are, are really buying into the quote unquote launch angle revolution. Uh, and but is there kind of a subset of players out there that are just not interested in this type of thing at all? Has it been just positive reception across the board for this? Oh, sure. There are absolutely players who don't look at any of this at all. I mean, you know, there are guys who don't need to. I, I would be very surprised if Mike Trout is ever thinking about his launch angle. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. uh, okay. I'm sure Miguel Cabrera does not think about any of this at all, and that's perfectly fine. There are guys 
who have been successful doing it the way they've been. And if that's what's worked for them, like that's wonderful. Um, I, I don't ever expect it to be, you know, a 100% acceptance. Like, how do I, how do I use this stuff? I like to look at guys like, you know, Justin Verlander is really interesting. He's probably a hall of famer. And for many, many years, he was dominant and just based on talent. Like he would say, he rarely, if ever, even looked at scouting reports. And then, you know, he got a little older and he had some surgeries and started to struggle a little bit. And then he went to Houston and he was a little blown away by the amount of information they had. Uh, and he's been just as good as ever with the Astros. And so I like the stories like that, uh, where guys are using the information to, to make themselves better. Obviously, Verlander is an incredibly talented guy uh, who'd already had success. But, you know, everybody knows the names of some of these guys who basically turned their careers from nothing into stars by now. You know, J.D. Martinez and Justin Turner and all these guys. Um, so there's always going to be guys who look at it. And I think you're going to see more and more guys ask for help. Like I just talked to Adam Adovino the other day and he had a fantastic year and he was kind of famous for renting out his father-in-law's vacant storefront in Harlem in New York city and hooking up all this fancy technology, the Edertronic cameras and the Rapsodo gear to really try to dig into his mechanics and his pitch design and everything. And he went out and had a killer season. So I look at a guy like that who's going to get a pretty nice contract in free agency. I have to think other guys are like, well, if this guy can do it and he's pretty good, but no one thought of him as elite, well, maybe I can do it too. So it's, it's always going to be a case of guys looking to improve uh, in any way they can. And then, you know, some guys don't need it. Some guys prefer not to think about it that much and just want to go out and use their talent. And, you know, that's fine too. I like that there are different ways to succeed. I like that you brought up Adam Adovino and we didn't have to do it because we were definitely going to bring it up. Uh, you, you talked to him, and the biggest thing that came out of that was, of course, him saying that he would that he would strike out Babe Ruth. And we 100% agree that he would strike out Babe Ruth. There is really no comparison when you look at the level that baseball is played at today and baseball played in the 1920s. Like you're, you're talking about that Babe Ruth and this Adam Ottavino. Babe Ruth never saw a single slider. And what you're seeing with a lot of these guys now, like Trevor Bauer, uh, who who is – probably the main poster child for, for analytic improvement, especially in pitchers uh, with what he does at driveline and the things that he puts out on Twitter. Uh, what you're seeing is pitchers who are not just trying new pitches, but who are actively using every bit of information available to them to develop pitches geared specifically towards their release point, their windup and, and their overall motion and that's something that you didn't get back in the day where you had people with the you know 10 second windups and everybody just threw a fastball at 82 mile an hour. When we're looking at a guy like Ottavino, though, my one thing that I've been rolling around in my head, how much of a pitcher's success can be attributed to their specific park? For, for Ottavino, for an example, he actually pitched, his slider was actually a fair bit more effective in Colorado than it was outside of Colorado. And everybody, when you think of Colorado, you think the launching pad for home runs. Well, thinner air would also be much better for breaking pitches like a slider, where it has less friction to to go against it. Do pitchers take these into account when they kind of develop their repertoires? Yes, definitely. Um, on Avino, I actually felt bad a little bit that this blew up as much as it did because you know, he was great. I talked to him for like half an hour, and that was literally the last thing he said, almost as a joke. And now that's what everybody uh, is talking about. So I hope he's not too annoyed about that quote. Uh, but yeah, I mean, if you look at the other things he said that weren't about Babe Ruth, um, what I learned is every time I talk to a pitcher, uh, you know, I generally learn something I didn't know. Like I would talk to him a little bit about how Coors Field affected his pitches. And what he said was that it's actually the worst thing you can do in Coors Field is to try to be a sinker baller, which is crazy to think about you know all those years they kept trying to just get guys to keep the ball on the ground and what he basically said was 
you know, to be a sinker, sinker baller, you're trying to get guys to make contact, but in a very specific way. And if you miss that by even a little bit, now it's bad contact. You know, you really want to be a guy who just misses bats entirely. And, you know, even if you make like a bad pitch, he said he, he's made some bad hanging curveballs that didn't actually fall in the way you'd expect and ended up being okay pitches, whereas anywhere else they probably would have gotten crushed. And that kind of blew my mind. I never thought about it in that way. Um, so I do think guys think about their, their home ballpark, you know, at the extremes, like if you were in Colorado, all that. Um, if you were in Yankee Stadium, you're probably not going to want to be a guy who gives up a ton of fly balls. But I, I, overall, I think park effects uh, outside of the extreme parks are probably smaller than people think it is. You know, I think every time somebody goes to a new park, people think that they're going to you know, have a massive change in outcomes. And that's probably not true. Um, and that's probably even more so for pitchers, just because I think there's a limited amount of control they have. Uh, over how they can get the guys to hit the ball other than, you know, ground balls, fly balls, et cetera. Well, it makes a lot of sense that you wouldn't want to be a sinker baller in Coors Field unless you're burying that sinker into the dirt every time, especially with the revolution of launch angle. And it's been something that, you know, good power hitters are known forever, that it's much easier to hit a ball out that's middle low. It's a lot easier to get under and, and give that ball that extra lift that you want if it's a lower pitch as opposed to one that you have to meet coming up. That's why, as Brace fans, you noticed Ozzy Albies struggling a lot with pitches up and in because he's got a natural arc into his swing. And when you come, you try to meet a pitch that's up, you know, belly button to chest high, you tend to either pop it up or roll up over the top of it. Um, when, when you're talking about things like that, you we were talking about launch angle a minute ago, and one of the biggest proponents of it, it's not just – you know, it's not the Mike Trouts and the Miguel Cabreras, but there are some big name players like Justin Verlander, like you mentioned. Uh, new brave Josh Donaldson is a huge proponent of launch angle, and he's actually uh, kind of gone back and forth with with you know Braves legend Chipper Jones about it at points. Uh, and it's it's more about the the guys that are I don't want to say marginal talents because that doesn't do them justice, but guys like Daniel Robertson, guys who were good enough to get there, but they didn't have quite the stuff to stand out. He kind of changes it around, and he he equates his his more devotion to the launch angle metric as what turned him into one of the breakout stars before he got injured last season. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I also think most players don't actually ever talk about launch angle. Uh, in that way, like Daniel Murphy is a tremendous nerd. So he will specifically say, oh, I want to hit the ball at 28 degrees of launch angle, whatever. Uh, but launch angle isn't isn't the the thing that you do. Launch angle is the outcome of your swing, right? So guys, they're not really talking about increasing their launch angle. They are talking about getting on plane with their swing. You know, you, you look at the ball is always falling uh, as a pitch. It doesn't matter if they're throwing a fastball that you might consider a rising fastball. There's still gravity. The ball is still falling. And it's really about not swinging down on the ball anymore. It's about swinging on plane, getting on the same attack angle as the pitch is. And if you do that right, you will make square contact. And if you do it perfectly, you'll get it, you know, in the air. And that's really what everybody wants to do. So, you know, there are guys like you mentioned, Robertson, he's a perfect example. Uh, I think of Daniel Descalso, who's a light hitting backup infielder for a number of years. And if you look at him this year, he actually had a nice little power season. And he talked about, you know, going to one of these hitting coaches and not talking about his launch angle, but talking about, you know, where can I get to my power? I always think of uh, when J.D. Martinez talked about how he kind of remade his swing. Uh, the realization for him, like the lightning bulb moment, was before he had made any changes, when he got his perfect A swing off and he connected in exactly the way he wanted to, the outcome was a line drive back up the middle, which is like what every hitting coach at the time would say, great. And he thought to himself, well, if I did everything perfectly and exactly the way I want and the best outcome for me is a line drive up the middle. What am I doing here? Like, I want my best outcome to be a crushed home run. 
And that's kind of where he went and changed it. So I don't think he went into it saying, well, I'm going to change my degree from this to this. Uh, he said, how can I change my swing? So the outcomes are better for me. And, you know, he did, it's, as he said, uh, his swing used to be almost like a V shape, like a down and an up. And now it's more like the Nike swoosh, you know? So it's all about that angle of attacking the baseball. So right now the, we are at the, the Wednesday of the, of the winter meetings and, you know, starting to get some free agents coming off the board. Andrew McCutcheon, uh, Charlie Morton signed probably about 15, 20 minutes ago. Um, how big of an impact do you see all of this new available information having on free agency and, and in trades? I mean, it's it's putting it's putting numbers on things that were unquantifiable before this. Um, in last year's free agent class, there were there were some of the guys like Arietta and you Darvish. These guys had their had their warts about them. So there's a lot of conjecture about um whether the the slow moving free agent class had something to do with the players themselves how much do you think that this is is changing that landscape i think it is changing it in some sense uh, i don't i don't think it's responsible for the free agent class we saw last winter or anything like that i think you know teams are always going to be interested in learning as much as they can about players as they possibly can and a big part of that is health and trying to predict whether a guy is more or less likely to get hurt or if maybe you can say that, you know, a poor season uh, was the result of actual declining skill or was it the result of, you know, something else? I think teams are definitely looking at, let's say, Bryce Harper's lousy defensive metrics, right? I don't think he was a good outfielder last year, but I certainly don't think he was the worst defensive outfielder in baseball, which I think some of the metrics would say. So when I dug into this, you know, I, w- I looked, I'm like, okay, let's find out all of his poorly rated plays, like all these balls that he quote unquote should have caught and find out why he didn't. And, you know, what I found was it wasn't a lack of skill or a lack of speed in being able to get there. It was he just maybe wasn't aggressive enough in some points uh, or the ball hit him in the glove and he just didn't catch it. You know, those are the kind of things that aren't necessarily fatal flaws as opposed to, um, I don't know, a Nick Castellanos, who also had a, a poor defensive metric. If you watch him, I just don't think he's capable of playing the outfield. You know, Reese Hoskins, obviously, is not going to be an outfielder. I just don't think he's got the skill to do it. So that's the sort of thing when, when teams are looking at the data and they're trying to get not just to the the number necessarily, but the reasons beneath it. You know, why was this guy bad? Do we have something that we could help fix him? You know, or is there a red flag where this guy had a great season, but I don't think he can keep it up? Those are the kind of ways that teams are definitely uh, starting to use the data. You just brought up Nick Castellanos, who's kind of the the guy on the Braves' radar now during the winter meetings. Uh, you you just said that you don't think he could ever that he's just bad fielding, where Bryce just has some some more, whether it be route taking or, or whatever. Uh, is Castellanos a guy that's just lost, or is that a guy that you know with some more with some more time in the outfield away from third base that could eventually get to just slight, just get to below average instead of horrible? Well, you're you're right that I think inexperience is part of it there because he came up as a third baseman and has been in the outfield for I think maybe two seasons now, so I think that's part of it. Um, but you know, I I look at a guy like that and I just I don't see that much that says he's going to improve. And I don't know that any team is going to look at him in that way. I mean, for me, he's a DH. Um, and I listen, I love Nick Castellanos. He crushes the ball. I've always been a big fan of his as a hitter. Uh, you know, he, just, he couldn't hack it at third, and the outfield's gone pretty poorly. And I'm certainly not going to sit here and say that there's no chance of him improving because, you know, I've never met him. I don't know anything about him. But I, it's, it's hard to go from that bad to even competent um, unless you're, you know, really young and have a lot more time ahead of you. And, and I don't know that he does. So for me, I, I would not want him on a National League team. I, I want him as my DH somewhere. 
I would I would tend to agree. I've always thought DH when you see him. The interesting thing though with him will be once you get him out of Comerica, uh, how does his bat play up in some of the smaller parks? But that's actually kind of leading me into my next question. With all the wealth of, of data available to you, and, and it's not really just the eye test anymore for these front offices, when you see – I would have thought this a whole lot more last year where, Nick, where Mike Moustakas struggled so hard to find a deal, but Andrew McCutcheon getting a lot of money for, for a little bit less performance kind of threw that out of whack a little bit. How much – we, we make a big deal about the big oversized contracts, the Mike Stanton deal. Bryce Harper is going to break off. Mike Trout's going to reset the universe, and he deserves to. Uh, but what does it mean for the more marginal player, your Michael Brantleys of the world, your A.J. Pollocks, guys who are going to want your traditional, you know, the 85-year 80, 80 million deal or six-year 80 million, or guys like Hayward who got 180 million, uh, that now we can go through their their entire body of work and you can look at everything they bring to the table and say – yeah, he's better at this one area, but overall, he's not doing that much for my team. Well, I think it's going to be different for every kind of guy. Like, for example, McCutcheon, you know, just got three years and $50 million, And I've seen a lot of pushback from people saying that they're surprised it was that much. And I wasn't. I, I thought it was actually pretty fair for both sides. Um, when I looked into him and a couple other guys earlier in the offseason, you know, he's he's not necessarily young anymore in baseball terms. He's just you know, 30 Two, I think um, I looked at some of the underlying data, the, the foot speed data, and I didn't really see any decline. You know, he's still as, as fast as he's ever been. And that's kind of the first place you'd look if you were worried that a guy was maybe slowing down. Um, even if you're not necessarily worried specifically about stolen bases, you know, you might care if this does a slower foot speed turn into slower bat speed. You know, those are the sort of things we're still learning. Um, so I, I imagine for a guy like McCutcheon, it probably helped it, you know, and certainly there are other guys uh, where it may not help them at all as we start to move away from just valuing home runs uh, and RPIs. Like Moustakis, I was surprised at the deal he got last year, for sure. But I also don't think he's that great. I think third base, maybe right now, is being played uh, at a higher level than it ever has in the history of baseball. There are so many good third basemen. Like We do this show every January for MLB Network, where we rank the top 10 at every single position. So I'm just starting to put my lists together. And I looked at my third base list, and forget top 10, I don't think Moustakas makes my top 15. Like, Miguel Andujar right now, and Josh Donaldson right now, and Travis Shaw did not make my initial top 10 list. And maybe they'll get on before I submit it, but I think that should tell you a little bit about how just ridiculously deep it is. So for Moustakas, I just think it's it's the depth of his position, and it's the changing uh, of what we value. You know, he's a very old-school type, power and RBIs. And we didn't care about on-base percentage. I think he'd have done a lot better than he's probably going to do right now. Can I ask, how did Johan Camargo, my personal man crush favorite, make? How did he rank out on your third base list? Uh, I don't think he came anywhere on my third base list because, <sighs> you know, probably Josh Donaldson was my Atlanta third baseman. That's okay. I'll 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 suck it up. Uh, but talking <laughs> uh, talking about that a little bit. Do you think that the new metrics? Do you think they value pitchers or hitters more? I don't know that they would value either of them more. I just think that they are able to tell you you know different things. Like for pitchers, uh, we've learned just so much more about you know pitch shape and and you know spin rate is just like scratching the surface of it. Right. Obviously, we have velocity, we have pitch movement. You know, but now we're learning so much about where each type of pitch is useful based on the, the pitch, the movement and the shape and the spin and all of it. So I think that's uh, that's a huge deal. And I think that's partly, partially why pitchers have been so dominant because they're just ahead in that. But, you know, hitters are starting to catch up. You know, like all the guys we talked about, 
sort of adapting their swings to try to get on plane. Um, I don't know that I would say that this makes anybody more valuable. It just sort of changes the way we use it as a, as a coaching tool and a scouting tool, really. Well, Mike, I know that um... – God, I can't believe that we've already been talking about this for 25 minutes. I know, I know that we've got to, we got to let you get back to your day, man. But I just had a, a quick question, and that's, um, you know, this has only only been in place for a couple of years now. It seems like everywhere you turn, it's it's Waba and you know all all of these different um, new stats that a couple of years ago were completely foreign. I just wanted to know um, what's what's next. I mean, what's the next evolution of this? Do you have things that you guys are working on that within the next couple of years you think are going to be like the, the next it stat or or anything? Well, yeah, I mean, we've got some new metrics that are going to come out before uh, opening day next year. So it'll be uh, a first look at infield defense, which I think will be cool. You know, and it's not going to suddenly tell you, like, Miguel Andujar is great and Matt Chapman is bad or anything, because I think the previous metrics have done a pretty good job of that. But hopefully we'll be able to do a better job of accounting for the shift and the positioning. So I think someone like Alex Bregman, who hasn't necessarily looked great in metrics uh, so far, I think hopefully we're going to make him look a little bit better. Um, we're also going to get into uh, some outfield stuff, like who runs the best routes and who's got the, the best uh, reaction time and all that stuff. And then as the future goes on, I'm hopeful that the technology will improve a little bit and we can maybe get into uh, you know actually tracking bat speed and all that kind of stuff that we can't currently do now. So there's always a long list of things we want to get to, and I'm pretty excited to always have some interesting things to come out each year. And I'm going to hijack one more thing here because it's been bugging me this whole time. When you, You're talking about the sprint, the sprint speed metrics, and I love looking at those. One thing that that kind of I don't know if it's more an anomaly or what, but you're talking about infield defense, which I cannot wait to see. But you talk about sprint speed, and everybody equates speed with good defense. You look at shortstop though, and that's not the case. Francisco Lindor is probably the only one who's who's a fast sprint speed type of guy who's a great defender. You look at a guy like Andrelton Simmons or Brandon Crawford, traditionally very, very low sprint speeds, but you'd say that Andrelton Simmons has the best range of any of the shortstops in the game. I think that's probably true, and because, you know, sprint speed is is top speed, right? It's it's how fast are you running in your fastest one-second window, and you know, often that's not what happens in the infield. For the outfield, it makes a lot more sense. You know, for the infield, a lot of other things matter. You know, reaction time matters and, and positioning matters and all that stuff. So I do think speed is also important. You know, you certainly want to, wouldn't want to put Brian McCann at shortstop. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, I mean, I would want to do that. I would like to see that very much. But I also don't think speed is necessarily uh, the most important thing. Uh, I'm interested to see how many of these other things that we can quantify there. I cannot wait to see that. I, uh, Angleton is one of my all-time favorites to watch. And I I can't wait to see once we can quantify the reaction times, almost like when, uh, almost like in in football in the, in the draft and the combines when they do the twenty second shuttle when you're measuring somebody how fast they are side to side and whatnot. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for joining us. It was a lot of fun talking to you, and uh, this just really blew by. Absolutely, guys. Thanks a lot. Big thanks to Mike Petriel for coming on and spending some time with us. Very interesting things he had to say. Before we get into our next segment, I got to ask Doc: Did that kind of bum you out a little bit when he was talking about Nick Castellanos? Uh, yeah, yeah, a little bit. Um, I've been doing a, a, a lot of stat line scouting and trying to, to make the case for why his defense wouldn't be the worst thing that we've ever seen. But, um, <laughs> but it sounds like it would be. Yeah, it it would be. Yeah, AA was saying this week that uh, Ender's like a center fielder and a half, which is good because Nick Castellanos is like half of a right fielder. So <laughs> right. you add it all up and you've got, you have three outfielders. So... 
The, uh, I don't. I don't know, man. I think his bat would certainly play at uh, at SunTrust, but oh, no we, doubt. Yeah, but we saw we saw what happens when you stick somebody with the mobility of Stephen Hawking in, in the Braves outfield with yeah. Matt Kemp. So you have to hit so well to make up for that because you're going to give up on average probably an extra run a game with him in the, with him in the field. Yeah, and, but it, this is the thing about Castellanos is that. Last year was his first full year playing outfield. And once again, scouting scouting stat lines here, like the defensive improvement, it was real, you know, and just getting the reps, getting the familiarity. I think the farther away he gets from being a third baseman and the more he becomes like a, an outfielder, then, then you can still make the case to where he's going to continue to get better and be half Matt Kemp as opposed to, to being, being full Matt Kemp. So... But Comerica Park is enormous. It is a wasteland for hitters. And also, it makes it really tricky to field because you have that much more ground to cover. So Not only that, ha- you go from having, what, Jacoby Jones as their center fielder to having Ender? Right. I mean, everything that that, uh, that StatCast has taught us is that Ender, it, it backs up the eye test to where you can watch Ender and say, man, that guy's an amazing center fielder. And then you look at the numbers and say, I told you that guy was an amazing center fielder. <laughs> Well, he was talking about those new stats, talking about like route efficiencies and showing balls that certain guys get to where other guys have to lay out. You know what that mm-hmm. just makes me think of? Hmm. It's going to prove once and for all that Andrew Jones is the best defensive player to ever play the game. I have no doubt. And you know what that means? Vote for Andrew. That's true. We we are in the season. If you are in the position to vote for Andrew Jones, you should absolutely be doing so. And let me let me clarify this. If you're stupid enough to vote for Omar Vizquel and you don't vote for Andrew Jones, you should have your vote taken from you and you should spend 10 years behind bars. Well, even the guys that are like the Cleveland beat writers last year that came out and voted only for Vizquel and Jim Tomey um, and nobody else, you know, that's... You don't deserve a vote at that point because you're not voting on who's the best. You're voting on who you liked. And the quick thing on Omar Vizquel, yeah, the 2,800 hits looks real good. You realize he played like 21 years. So that comes out to 144 hits a season. That's not impressive. You just do that, uh, the math in your head there? Or did you have that one? Uh, oh, I've already done and- it. I have a whole long list, and I promise you, once we get closer to the Hall of Fame vote, I will be spamming your timelines with all of this. Just know, vote for Andrew. Agreed. I look forward to uh, to being spammed. That is a, a, a big deal. But when you're talking about defense like that, there's there's still a whole host of ways that they can go with the outfield. Now, winter meetings wrapping up, obviously, without a whole lot getting done outside of Depoto being the crazy mad Russian and pulling off a three team trade with money and draft picks from the hospital, which just sounds like the most Jerry Depoto thing to ever happen. It really does. I, I think that that uh, somebody dared him to do. It. I don't even know if he's sick. It, it was like he was uh, he was trying to. Uh, it's like he's playing Depoto Bingo. He's like, make a trade from the hospital. I think I could do that. <laughs> he's building his own legend. He's hitting the nurse call button, saying, "Nurse, nurse, quick, dial this number for me." And it's another trade with Seattle and Tampa Bay. There's so many that they've made just in the, in the last calendar year. They've made like seven trades with each other. It's crazy. Does it make a lot of sense? Now, the, the first reported thing, because it was in, insanely hard to follow uh, what was happening. The first reported one was that Edwin Encarnacion would be going to Tampa. Now it looks like he's staying in Seattle for a little bit. I don't know if that makes more sense to me or not because they let Crone go because he would have been paid just too much money. Edwin's owed a heck of a lot more than CJ Crone would have been. 
I kind of get the feeling that Encarnacion is a, is a more valuable asset than Carlos Santana is. I think that the part of you the reason so? why, well, Cleveland has a deep familiarity with him. You know, mm-hmm. he was God. He played with, for Cleveland for forever. Came and uh, a catcher. Well, I th- I think that he, I think that that's ultimately where he wanted to to wind up. But I mean, if the Phillies are going to give you sixty million dollars for three years, I mean, uh, take, it. take it. Yeah, yeah. No shame in that game. If somebody yeah. offers it to you, take it. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that Santana got what he wanted. I would not be surprised if if Depoto trades Encarnacion sometime in the next six weeks. Oh, I would not be shocked at all if he flips Depoto and uh, Swarzak, both of them. Yeah, I mean, so we'll we'll see where we'll see what happens there. So um, I don't know. It's and that was the biggest move. I mean, outside of um, McCutcheon signed, and th- there were. Uh, Familia signed. Well, we both we both got that one wrong. That was a our, that was a phenomenal phenomenal signing by the Mets. I'm gonna be clowning on Brody Van Wagenen for a long time, and I'll be clowning on him later in this episode. But getting Familia on three thirty, that's a fantastic sign. Yeah, and the Mets kind of owed it to themselves to do that because the return that they got when they traded him to Oakland in mid season. It was minimal, you the know. So they, they got, got their from the, what they gave up to get Edwin Diaz and you know Robinson Cano's hundred million dollars. Pretty much zero. They gave up yeah. way too much in that deal. So th- this seems like that was a good deal for them. As much as I hate to say it, I would have loved to see Jerry Familia in Atlanta. Yeah, and and there's still the the reliever market. It it got its first shot in the arm because as soon as as soon as Familia signed, Joe Kelly signed with the Dodgers. Pr- Pretty much immediately 14 after fourteen million so. a year for Joe Kelly, right? Is that what I saw? It's a three and twenty-five. Three and twenty-five. So quick math. So right around twelve and a half. Or no, he's uh, well, so it's over three years. So he's got like eight, eight and a third million dollars. Which, yeah. If okay. you if you go back and you look at his splits for his uh, the way that he pitched in March, April, uh, June, and October, got him twenty-five million dollars. Uh, the way he pitched in every other month would have got him sent to AAA. He Joe just, Kelly, like he's a dude. There, I do not think I keep waiting for his arm to explode. Like you, you want to talk about like good mechanics and good arm angle and, and low torque on your arm. Joe Kelly is like the poster boy for how not to teach somebody to throw. Short arms doesn't follow through. Throws insanely hard. Has a ton of of violent movement in his release, that dude should be a walking injury. I don't know how he makes it work. And he could be walking on the tightrope now. Who knows? Uh, with the volatility of relievers, the harder they throw, the uh, the more often they get injured. And so, I don't know. If you're throwing 103, then it, I don't want to use the term ticking time bomb, but I just did, so I'm going to roll with Pretty it. Pretty much. So. Like, I just keep waiting for his arm to like blow up on the mound, and you just see his bicep roll up and – you know, his arm just hang limp. I, I, that's one guy, like, I like when you see a guy like Joe Kelly, what he did in the playoffs was great. And that's a guy that, because of the playoff push that he had, you start thinking, ooh, maybe a fit for Atlanta. That's a guy that I really did not want to see Atlanta go after because he's just so volatile, and you don't know day-to-day if he's going to walk four straight or if he's going to strike out the side. Yeah, and we've talked before about you can uh, – being mediocre is better than being inconsistent because at least you know what you're going to get. Right. Now, in this case, it seemed to work out for him being mediocre and inconsistent seemed to work out for him pretty well. No, no knock on his hustle for getting his money. But 
I still go back to that McCutcheon deal for the Phillies. Everybody's saying that, yeah, it doesn't take them out of the Harper sweepstakes, but they haven't met with Harper while he's down in Las Vegas. They haven't met with him at all. And I just I just feel that was a lot of money to give McCutcheon. I know he still has the speed, but he's never really – he's had a weak arm forever. I know he's still got some pop, but, man, that seemed like a lot of money for for this version of McCutcheon. Yeah, the – Looking looking at it now with hindsight is a perfect fit because they are in the position to give him that money. That deal is backloaded, by the way. I think yeah, he's which, making, by the 19, way, I thought that was kind of weird that he's getting like $20 million in 2021. Yeah, but he's a, he's a Pennsylvania guy. He's from Pittsburgh. He played for the Pirates for forever. So it makes sense that he would go to the, the other Pennsylvania team and they had an opening in the outfield and they can flip Aaron Altair or Nick Williams. They, they can trade him to maybe try and get some something to supplement the team. And, they, you know, they could still they could still sign Bryce and they could spend all their stupid money or do do whatever they want to do. But uh, I don't know what the interesting thing for me is what that means for guys like Mike Brantley. Nick Markakis, AJ Pollock, because now you're looking at a guy like McCutcheon. Yeah, their who, prices just went up. Yeah, and and Kutch is remarkably consistent. He does not get hurt. He's hit 20 plus home runs every year for the last eight seasons. He's I and just what a great dude. I just I've I love always liked, I love the dude. I just yeah. like I would have been in on him at like four, 13 to 14 million a year. But you start getting up close to 20. I don't know, man. At the end, because it's not like you're paying twenty million dollars to thirty-two year old Andrew McCutcheon. You're paying that to thirty-four year old Andrew McCutcheon. So. Right. I'd have preferred to give that to thirty-two year old McCutcheon and not thirty-four. That trade, that that contract, if it doesn't work out this year, that contract's going to be nearly impossible to get under, to get out from under. They could be looking at a, at another Carlos Santana situation, which next uh-huh, year sucks for you, but you know whatever. Um, it, it kind of seems everybody's kind of freaking out. The Braves aren't making a whole lot of moves in winter meetings. I'm not shocked at all. We've got some reports from Ben Ingram today talking uh, on the radio saying that uh, there is a potential move for a starting pitcher that the Braves are working on. It's not close enough to be completed during the winter meetings, but the talks have started to heat up. My first thought is Marcus Stroman. I would love love that. <laughs> I mean, Marcus Stroman is is – Appointment level television. He's so entertaining on the mound. Um, he's coming off of a pretty bad year, so you have to wonder about their willingness to actually move him now, as opposed to waiting till like the trade deadline uh, to let him kind of reestablish some value. But this this is where you can look at Atlanta's farm system. Like if you're uh, Ross Atkins, is that that Toronto's GM? I believe so, and they've been a little reticent to trade with AA since he was just there, but. You, you look at the fit, you look at what the Braves could give back. It, it just seems too good of a fit for them to just say, no, nah, we're not going to deal with you. Yeah, I, th- I think that could be a really good fit. Uh, my first thought was Sonny Gray, but part of that has to do with the fact that Brian Cashman basically – basically nothing. He just came out and said, we're trading Sonny Gray. And yeah, then, he just flat out said he's not going to be on our team opening day. Yeah, and then they traded for James Paxton, and they signed J.A. Happ, so – uh, unless they're running out the eight-man rotation, then there really is kind of uh, there's no room for him there. And I know that Sonny Gray is a very, very polarizing target. Not a fan, and I get it. But if you look at his road splits last year, his road FIP last year was two sixty-five. Now, but and and the weird thing was like 
every single thing about his line in Yankee Stadium was where every single thing he gave up more home runs, he gave up more line drives, he get everything. He struck out less, walked more. But it just tells me some guys are just not New York type, you know. And and I've seen people saying, oh, so what if the Braves play the Yankees in the World Series? If the, if that at least is I'm there, one, at least I'm in the World Series. Right. So so maybe you, you don't pitch Sonny in that game. There are ways around that. You know, you can make the contingency plan if you if you uh, if you make it to the World Series. So I don't know. I, I would be intrigued by it. He's only got one year left and he's making nine million dollars. It would be a good value play. It could be a really interesting buy low. I don't think it would cost anything in the, the top 10 prospects, um, maybe even a little bit beyond that. And that's it the depends. kicker. That's your kicker right there. Because I am deathly against Sonny Gray. Uh, you look at his last two seasons in Oakland, and they weren't good. Uh, basically, he was Julio. He had that one breakout season, his his rookie year. Uh, then he kind of dealt with a little bit of injuries. Then he had another good year after that. But his last two seasons in Oakland, including when he got traded to New York, were very bad. They were very Julio-esque. He had a high FIP in a gigantic ballpark, which didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Uh, gave up a lot of home runs. I just I don't like fly ball pitchers in a ballpark where lefties can feast. That that's my thing. I'm not a big fly ball guy. I mean, and Sonny Sonny is not the the top of my my pitching acquisition wish list, wish list uh, by any means. But if that were to happen, then I would not be nearly as devastated as a lot of people. I think that uh, that just getting out of that environment, you know, he's uh, he went to Vandy. He's got some ties in the Southeast. Who knows? Could, but then again, it could be a, a uh, a Dansby situation where you know he, he's also from around here. So <laughs> that's the so, that's my thing. Like if you're giving up like a, a reliever prospect, because it better not be anybody in your top fifteen. Really, I don't think he's worth that. You know that they have to deal him. Like like let's say it's Thomas Burroughs. If you go Thomas Burroughs for Sonny Gray, I can live with that. Like if if you deal Freddie Tarnock for Sonny Gray, I think I can live with that. Even though Tarnock has a lot of exciting things for being as raw as he is. If you go Tarnock for Sonny Gray, I could live with that. If you start getting up into the Joey Wentz and the Kyle Mullers of the system, we've got a real problem at that point. Yeah, I, w- I would not be I would not be happy with that. But I've said it before, and I will say it again, the Braves front office is smarter than me. If they think that Sonny would work here, and they also think that uh, Freddie Tarnock is going to just completely fall apart from now on, well... They have the data to back that up. I, I have what little I have seen of Freddie and and what what I have seen of uh, of Sonny. So, um, wouldn't hate it, but uh, until a deal for like a Kluber Bauer type goes down, then you know those those guys are at the at the very top for me. But I, I do like your idea of Marcus Stroman. I think that he would be. Yeah, we always joke so much about, you know, A is just going to go get guys from Toronto and L.A. He's, he's going to go get guys that he's familiar with. And, well, he made that giant trade with the Dodgers and then went out and signed Josh Donaldson. So maybe, uh, you know, we should just be looking at other guys that, that he has uh, been the GM for. Well, during the, his the, two te- the two teams that he's most familiar with at the time that he was with them were both very good teams. So that's not exactly bad people to go after. Sure. Uh, especially if the Dodgers are, are being honest about not wanting to go into the luxury tax. Yasiel Puig and Alex Wood would still be one of my favorites. Yasiel Puig makes too much sense. I know uh, it was a DOB saying that the Braves aren't in on Puig at all. Don't don't buy that. That would be stupid for AA to limit himself on that. That's just DOB doesn't like Yasiel Puig. Or it was, it was either DOB or Jeff Schultz. No, DOB was, was saying that. That's why. Uh, Sorry, Schultz. Yeah, 
I, I was just talking about how polarizing Sonny Gray was. There might not be anybody <laughs> more so than Yasiel Puig, man. They, people hate his guts, and I'm I'm here for it, dude. Give me a team that has got Yasiel Puig, Ronald Acuna, and Ozzy Albies. That is so swaggy, just all freaking day. Like it's the dugout year. antics. It's one year, so when everybody talks about, oh, he'll kill your locker room and your chemistry – one, no, he won't because more people were on his side than Zach Granke's in that whole debacle. And two, it's one season. You think he's going to destroy a clubhouse in one year? Well, and also Charlie Culberson is apparently a, a very good friends with the OCL police. And if Charlie and, Culberson uh, is friends with them. I trust Charlie with my life. Right. And and I just, I don't, it's the clubhouse chemistry thing. It's such a, oh God, here we go. It's it's Jose Batista and then it's Bryce Harper. And it's like, you don't know these people right. you're just saying they're bad people That's for something thing. that you saw on tv we've got this weird sort of mentality here that if they're not a brave that they're bad for clubhouse chemistry if that were true then none of the other teams but the braves would be winning world series folks right the nice guys finish last as, as the saying goes so unis uh, cespedes anybody think that he's a horrible teammate he's one of the most flamboyant guys there is he rode a horse to spring training he had a Remember when that necklace completely exploded out near second base? That was like $70,000 worth of diamonds all over the dirt. I mean, you don't wear a $70,000 chain in the middle of a freaking baseball game unless you've got, you know, unless, you, unless you're flamboyant, unless you're very, uh, you know, it's like something that Liberace would do. The man dressed as a cowboy and rode a horse to the ballpark and parked the horse. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, actually, I think it was a debacle. They didn't have horse parking at the right. training facility. It was one of the greatest things ever. I love you in a Cespedes. I just hate the fact that he doesn't have any feet. Yeah, that's. Um, I hope he can come come back from that. Uh, I really do. You never you never want to see somebody dealing with something like. I mean, it's. God, we joke about the Mets curse, but my God, so he's got to have surgery on both of his heels. Right. Well, it was just the one, and then they bring him back, and then it's both. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't happen on any team other than the Mets. So, And I will say this about Yoannis Cespedes. Um, his walk-up music is the theme from The Lion King. Respect. Which is awesome. Yeah, that's uh, amazing. He's, he's, one of, he's one of my favorite personalities in baseball. But that wasn't the only big news in winter meetings. Not a whole lot happened, but there's a whole big mess of fun rumors. You got... The White Sox, who appear to be the front runner for Bryce Harper right now, which nobody would have would have imagined, and we're not going to get super deep into it. But you talk about the White Sox; they've got maybe the number two farm system. Uh, either them or Tampa Bay has the number two behind the Padres in in Major League Baseball, so they have quite a number of people they could field. They wouldn't be contenders in 2019. But you talk about 2020 when they could add Eloy, Dylan Cease, Bryce Harper, Jose Abreu in the same lineup, Zach Collins as well, Jake Berger if he comes back from his Achilles. Well, they've got some pieces there and a ton of money that they can throw around in a management group that's tired of sucking. The biggest one for me, though, and, Doc, you and I talked about this a little bit today, and I've, I've kind of been freaking out a little bit over this. Apparently, Boston is willing to trade Xander Bogarts. Yeah. Um, I did not see that coming. They've uh, – and and maybe they're they're trying to, to make some type of run. I don't think it's going to be like for Kimbrell or something, but – they're to the point where Mookie Betts is going in. He's not even going into his last year of arbitration, and he's projected to make $19 million, I think. I mean, he's he's going to make a whole bunch of money. And, uh, you know, you start looking at some of the things that you could move to supplement your club. Otherwise, Bogarts, it would 
suck for them to move him, but uh, I would be all over that because that that's Hell what I'm yeah. saying. Like you know me and Dansby, I'm not a Dansby fan. You are, you like Dansby, but I think we can both come to an agreement that Xander Bogarts is a substantial upgrade. Wait, you don't you don't like Dansby? I know, shocking revelations yes. here on the Platinum Sombrero, folks. Um, First, I've heard of it, but Xander Bogarts is one of these short list. Maybe one of the most underrated talents in baseball right now. Like you don't you don't hear his name thrown around with the Lindors and Seegers and Correas of the world, but he is extremely talented. You're talking about a 23 home run third base or shortstop. And yes, I know he played in the AL East, so that bumps the numbers a little bit. But he's a great hitter, gigantic OBP guy, always on base, uh, still fast as well. Plays an above average defense. It's not a great defense, but it's an above average defense. Uh, that's a guy, and that's only for one year would be the problem. He's projected to make $12 million. But if you're asking me to make an upgrade on my team, yeah, give me Xander Bogarts yesterday. Oh, I'd, I'd certainly uh, be open to, to adding him. I, I don't even know what something something like that would take. But he's, you know, one, everybody values different things in players. And whenever I'm looking at somebody, like especially when he gets into evaluating guys for the draft, I like I the – the one tool guys, the one trick ponies, like I, that just that does does nothing for me. You right. Know? Like you look at a guy like Bogarts, he does everything. He's a little bit of everything. Yeah, he's he's very solid in every on both sides of the ball. Like you said, he's a, he's an above average defender. His offense or the power kind of comes and goes. Like it, it's you know he'll hit twenty two home runs streaky. one year and then he'll hit twelve the next. But it, but like his average is always high. Great OBP. Um, and he would probably be another one that would fit really well in this clubhouse. Now, like I said, I don't, I don't know exactly what Boston is looking for there. Here's but, what um, I was toying around with. It's one year, so you got to imagine you're going war for war. They're probably going to want right around a 50 to 55 future value. Bear with me on this. Would you do a Newcomb, and let's say a Newcomb and a Vizcaino, if that brought you, if that brought you Bogarts? That's a lot of team control, man. That is. That's a that's a lot. But as I've mentioned um, multiple times, I'm not reticent on trading Newcomb because I firmly believe that you can throw Max Fried in the Newcomb spot and you're going to get essentially the same pitcher. Uh, that's probably true. That's probably very true. But if I am going to trade Newcomb, I want it to be for somebody where you're going to get more than one year, like uh, Kluber, Bauer, type, Mitch Hanniger type you know what i mean somebody that uh, let's say they want a dansby instead say say it goes let's let's change it up a little bit say dansby mentor would you do that hmm my initial reaction is not to say no so <laughs> that that is um that also is a lot of team control but that does kind of change it up just a little bit the so, question on that would be if you if you go like that then you have to worry about what you do afterwards because Xander's going to get himself a pretty hefty contract he is and the Braves don't have a, a whole lot of um, they just have to be careful because you can't give too long on a big deal because then you're going to run into problems signing Acuna and Albies well and it's not like the Braves have somebody that they can just plug in after that like so many of the international prospects that got taken were middle infielders whether it's Maiton or Levon Soto or Uni or Severino like the, there were so many of those yeah. guys were set to be the middle infielders of the future and outside of Ray Patrick Ditter I'm trying to think of 80 grade Riley Delgado son yeah okay that's fair but Delgado made it to high A last year so he's probably you still have a ways to go and he's 
Delgado is great, but I don't think that he's going to be like a starting regular on a on a championship team. AJ Graffanino. All right, all right. <laughs> no, that, that's it. Does raise an interesting point because I want Xander Bogarts, but the fit does have to be there. And while you could deal from prospect depth to get him pretty easily, the question would be: I don't think Boston is going to make a move that doesn't make them better in this season. So unless they are attempting to deal. Bogarts in order to free up some money to go after Harper. That would be the only way that it would make sense to me. So just something mulling around the old noodle. I, I don't want to waste too much more time on this. Maybe we can tackle that another week, but I'm, I'm all for bringing Baki in here. Um, I guess I, I'm not going to be able to think of much else, but we got to move on. Um, <laughs> it was also the rule five draft today. The Braves didn't take anybody in the major league portion, took three depth guys from the minor leagues. They did get a two way player. Uh, he's just not very good at either tool. Which one was the, was it Unro? No, it was uh, Swayze, Sweezy, whatever his name is. Crazy, Creasy. Creasy, Creasy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, he's just okay. not very good at either. Huh. You know, I, I was looking looking at him uh, earlier, and he was uh, he's kind of your standard Rule 5 profile guy. Big strikeouts, big walks. Yep. Um, and the other, the other guys, I think his name is Raphael DePaula. They took him from, uh, from the Reds. Every single thing about his line was extreme. He had like oh, a, yeah. he's Mauricio Cabrera. He is six, insane yeah. strikeouts, insane walks. Well, not just that. He was dealing with like a 98% left on base rate <laughs> and a 28% home run to fly ball ratio. Like Seems impossible. Yeah, really. And he's 28. So, and most of the time when you're looking at the minor league portion, then it's just going to kind of be organizational guys like Anderson Franco who was one of those Andre Santiago type guys who, you know, you need him to start a game in Rome, he'll start a game in Rome. You need him to start a game in Gwinnett, he can start a game in Gwinnett. Like, on consecutive days, these guys are, are cyborgs, basically. And they just kind of fill in. But you never know. You you have to gamble on these guys. And a guy like Riley Unroe, who they took from the Angels, I think? Yes, um, I think so. Yeah, he he's somebody that'll be like, he'll be that minor league depth when guys like, Riley Delgado, AJ Graffinino, and anybody else that you are shaming me for having forgotten, uh, as they are they playing the middle infield for some of the uh, whether it's Florida or, or Mississippi or. Wherever. I also think Atlanta's just trying to corner the market on Riley's, so I expect to see Riley Farrell here soon. Well, uh, ideally, and if who knows if the the Marlins are, uh, I think they were the ones that wound up taking Riley Farrell. So uh, if the, any if there's any truth to these real Muto rumors, then hopefully they're targeting Riley Farrell as well. That would be kind of cool. I've always liked Riley Farrell. It, once again, same same profile. Huge strikeouts, control issues. Yeah, and it's just that I just I, I just like that look about him. I always thought he'd be a little bit better by this point than he actually is. Um, but the other big news, of course, the thing that's got everybody freaking out is Alex Anthopoulos leaving uh Wednesday night we're recording we're finishing this up on Thursday leaving Wednesday night to go to a meeting with Liberty Media now everybody's ran, running the gambit whether it's oh no we're out of money or oh no that just means that Alex wasn't really talking to anybody to holy crap we're about to get Bryce Harper <laughs> there's not a whole lot of in between it's uh you know not not every single thing is meant to be like a smoke screen or, or have like some deep hidden meaning to it. I mean, I, I would imagine 
that uh, that this was scheduled long in advance to say, okay, go to the winter meetings, meet with all the agents, meet with the, the other GMs, figure out where we are. And because and, they know that they are going to add some more. They know that they've got $25 million-ish. But if you start looking at something saying, we can get this guy over here, we have these big ideas and we want to add some payroll, then yeah, we might need to have a little bit of flexibility here. What's the ceiling of, of what I can actually do? How much money do I actually have here? You know. So what you're and telling I think that, me, I think, you're telling me I, that they're going to add Xander Bogarts and Jackie Bradley Jr. Right, exactly. And, uh, you know, I, I just... I'm not really much of a conspiracy theorist. I don't think that this is meant to be anything that's like super controversial. I think if anything, it's good that, that he's got an exact idea of how much, uh, how much he needs to reserve for, for mid season trades. I mean, cause they wound up taking on some payroll for, for Gossman. We can't forget, you know, everybody was saying we got so much money to spend. Well, we added a starter at the trade deadline. So the, the urgency might not be there quite as much to, to go out there and make another huge splash. But this piece of information kind of underscored something I've been thinking about for, for a really long time. Like if it was 1996 or whatever, you know, this is pre pre Twitter and, and everybody, the information that they get, they, they're reading it in the newspaper. You know, they know like 0. 0.0001 of, of what is going on with the team to fast forward to now. And we can follow Bowman and Schultz and Dob and John Heyman. Who? Why would yeah, I follow John, him unless? I'm, oh no! Wait, you mean Scott Boris is like paid lapdog? You know, I like I said, I'm not much of a conspiracy theorist. I don't like to get into this guy is doing this. John Heyman literally hates the Atlanta Braves, and I, I can that's that's if, true. If you don't but, want to jump out on the conspiracy, I'll say this: John Heyman is literally MLB's version of Mel Kiper Jr. Scott Boris that, pays that dude for plugs. That that's all it is. I think that's a really good comp, actually. But uh, but now, so so whoever whoever you want to follow, then now we know like point zero zero eight of what's going on. We know a lot more than we used to, but we still don't know anything. You know what I mean? It's not like these. <laughs> it's it's weird, man. Like we we feel tapped in, and like we get this news. Like if it was 1996 and Alex Anthopoulos left the winter meetings early, you wouldn't know until the next. You wouldn't know until like three months later, right? And then so all of the people that that are, um, you know, say the the people that are saying we're going to sign Bryce Harper, the people that are saying uh, we're out of money because Liberty Media is cheap, and it, all of these different sections of people that that have clearly defined themselves for this has to mean it doesn't have to mean something. Not everything has to mean something. So. I don't know. It it, it really kind of. This is Alex Anthopoulos, man. He is he has made a career out of being calm and rational and thoughtful about the things that he is he is going to do here. So, and he made it really clear early in the the winter meetings, like we're not close on anything. We've got we're doing our due diligence. We're doing our homework. We know what certain things are going to cost, and we'll come back to it later. Last year, the the Matt Kemp deal that happened two days after the winter meetings ended. So. Winter meetings ended today. If he keeps on the same schedule, then by Saturday, then we'll have Mitch Hanniger on our team. It's like like the winter meetings are almost like putting people on the trade block right before the trade deadline. Everybody's kind of talking about, hey, what's going on here? I I agree with you. I don't think that this is a big deal at all. Uh, I everything that Alex has 
going to do at the winter meetings he can do over a conference call or a phone call on the last day. It's not that big of a deal. The other point that you just mentioned about us knowing more because of social media and, and driving that and all the uh, reporters wanting to get everything out there and boost their own status, obviously, which I'm not going to fault them for, uh, because if we could do that here on the Platinum Sombrero and break news, I most certainly would. Um, Absolutely. But there is a caveat on that. While you most certainly can know more information, it is also so much easier to buy into the wrong information. And if you don't think that front offices send out wrong information, you're crazy. Just go look at the account of, I don't know, pick a pick a reporter. Pick John Heyman, John Morosi, Bob Nightingale, whoever, whoever. Good reporters, most of them. Uh, very good reporters plugged into most of the things that, that, that they talk about. Just go look at their timelines, folks. You're going to see them backtracking off things a day later because there's so many sources of disinformation that it becomes a quagmire trying to find the truth in it. That's that's absolutely true. And and sometimes the, the when information will get leaked, it's kind of seemed like the, the Marlins – have been using the media to leak out a little bit of information. Like this whole real Muto thing, I just want it to be over. I don't care. <laughs> Me if too. At to this point. I just want him to go somewhere so we can stop hearing about it. And and you know that as soon as he gets traded, like let's say he gets traded the Reds because the Reds are apparently like good for them. They want to step out of last place. Good for them. They got to start making some moves. And they're apparently linked to Kluber and Bauer and real Muto and Puig and Alex Wood and so everybody good- who's available. Right. So you know that if they wind up getting J.C. Romuto, then there's somebody in Braves country who's going to go, they're going to flip him. They're going to immediately turn around and trade him. Most of the time, unless it's Jerry DePoto, that's not (laughs) the thing. Most most GMs aren't trading for somebody just to flip him, and they aren't trading a Taylor Trammell just to flip the guy that they traded him for. Right. I mean, and and I'm not saying that 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 couldn't happen because uh, sometimes Major League Baseball turns into the wild, wild west, but... My God, man. That's like, a bad way of doing business. If if a team trades with you, like say the Marlins end up trading with the Reds, essentially what they're doing is because they don't want to trade Rio Muto to the Mets or the Braves. It's because they don't want to trade him in division. So if the Reds, for instance, were to trade for Rio Muto and instantly flip him to the Mets or the Braves, you can pretty much cross Miami and Cincinnati off the trading list. Like They, they just won't trade anymore. Yeah, that is, that is very much a gesture of bad faith. Between the front offices, yeah, like that's like copies ten thousand texts. Yeah, if the, if the the point is to get him out of the division, then then that's kind of that's very Judas of uh, of Cincinnati to turn around and trade him. So, oh, if you but, don't want to take that great deal from them, we will. That that's all it is, really. And I, I I don't see much happening. We'll see next week when we get on there. We were both wrong on Familia, unfortunately, but we've got some dominoes about to fall here. It looks like you can start to see some of the bigger guys start to come off the board here soon. And once those big guys come off the board, then I think free agency really gets into the big swing of things. I've said this before, though. I don't think the Braves are going to be very big players in free agency for the rest of this. I think we're done in free agency. You might see us add. Uh, a reliever, maybe a Zach Britton even, or, or just any sort of reliever as a Tony Sip, some some mid-range guys. I think the big acquisitions come through trades. Absolutely. I, I think I think that's absolutely and definitely Definitely not Craig Kimbrell at six years and $100 million. That's weird. Like, I know that he's one of the best closers of all time, but, man, you ain't getting six and 100, man. Who You're, would pay him $18 million a year at this point? At this point, is he even the third best closer in baseball? Uh, I mean, he's up there, but he's he's starting to 
show the signs that he that he's been. I mean, he's not he's not nearly as young as he used to be. That that state I say that statement all the time, and it, it's two declining years no, in a row. Throws nobody, super hard. Nobody beats Father Time. Right, and and I I you have to lead off with the big offer and say, oh, I want six and a hundred, so I'll settle for four and seventy five. It's not like seventy five million dollars isn't just a shitload of money, but right. if you, if you can, you know, you don't also don't want to leave twenty five million dollars on the table. So, Let me just say this: unless it's a one year deal, I ain't giving no. I uh, screw that. Not even a one year deal. I'm not giving any closer seventeen million dollars. Take the best that, closer in the game last year, Edwin Diaz. Replace him. Replace Minter with Edwin Diaz. Do you know how the Braves change? Two games, and that's what you're talking about with the best closer a year ago. He adds two wins. You're essentially that's saying I would pay. That'd be paying Dansby Swanson seventeen million dollars. Dansby was a two war player. Seventeen million dollars. Would you do that for a guy who only whose only effectiveness really in most terms is when you're already winning the game? No, I mean, and and that's the, that's the thing about the the younger guys who are throwing so hard. Like the best part about them is not that they're throwing 105 and striking out 15 per nine. It's the fact that they're doing that while making 550 thousand dollars and right. not making 17 million. Like you can kind of you can play matchups with closer. We talk about because we're Brave fans and all we watch is the Braves. We see the blown saves or or the danger, and we go, "Man, we got to improve the closers." The Braves, as a team, were above average as far as closing as clo- as far as closing out games. We were actually above average in Major League Baseball. That's not an area of deep deep concern. Sure, maybe maybe once the playoffs come around, you want a Felipe Vasquez type of guy, but that closer is so far down the list that it's not even funny. I know we got to go. I got one more thing that I heard today. Did you hear Brian Snicker talking about the lineups? I did not tell me about it. Well, uh, love Brian Snicker manager of the year. Thought he did a phenomenal job this year. uh, As far as improving from a season ago and from his first season before that, uh, he is already backtracking to where he wants Ronald Acuna batting in the middle of or- the order, like fourth, and Ender batting leadoff again. This aggression will not stand, man. No, uh, this is where AA needs to pull him aside by the ear if he has to and say, look, man, <laughs> no. Ronald, there's a quite easy reason to why lineups are structured the way they are. Your three best hitters need to have the most at-bats. Where do they get the most at-bats? First, second, and third in the order. Leave them there. Oh, but RBI opportunities. RBIs are maybe the most misleading stat in all of baseball. RBIs are 100% a function of the players in front of that hitter. Well, and I've, I've, you can, okay, how can I word this? If they want to go left, right, left, right at the top, then Enciarte, Donaldson, Freeman, Acuna, that if NCRT be hitting fourth, then why wouldn't Acuna be batting second so that he sees better pitches in front of Freddie? Well, and, and okay, well, you can, you can do it that way too, but traditionally you know, keep in mind, Snitcher's how old is it? 62, he's, he's 60, a, he's a four. He's, he's old enough to where traditionally, like when he was coming up, then you put the power hitter fourth and some, something like that. I mean, that something like that can be hard to shake. Okay, it's a very seemingly new thing to have this guy who's hitting three hundred with 
you know, 40 home run potential and put him at the top of the order because it, quote unquote, squanders RBI opportunity. Where's Mookie Betts batting? He does bet. Well, according to uh, Alex Fire, he's going to wind up moving to second in the lineup. Okay, so where was he batting last year? Fair enough. Where did Mike Trout bat? He was batting leadoff. But so so I can I can kind of see that. But as currently designed, until you get a Hanniger, a Castellanos, uh, Eddie Rosario, somebody who you could plug into the cleanup role, then you do want to have because you know Freeman's going to get on base. And Donaldson's going to, you know, you're going to have guys on base for whoever comes up fourth. So I, I get it, but I think that as soon as another bat gets added to this lineup, I think that that whole idea just is considered poppycock and deleted. I mean, uh, ideally, I would want Ronald in second because I do want him to be able to drive in some people with doubles off the wall. I get that part of it. Ideally, I'd like him to bat second. You need a guy now, if you got Xander Bogarts, by the way, Xander's a guy who could hit leadoff. Super high OBP, fast enough to score on gappers, blah, 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 blah. Other than that, Ronald needs to bat first. One, because he is the spark plug for the offense. How Ronald Acuna plays is how the offense plays. Two, if you're hitting him, I always want Ronald in the first inning. Point blank, period. Do not bat him fourth. Bat him second, bat him third. I don't care. He needs to be in my lineup because the number one hitter, by the way, gets usually he'll get more at-bats than the rest of the lineup, period, because he'll come up in the ninth inning at the end of a game. Your top three hitters, if they're good, get about 100 at-bats more than the rest of the lineup. Why would you not want your top three? If Ozzy Albies can be a little more like minor league Ozzy, then he is perfect for the leadoff spot. And then you, when you can go Albies, Acuna, Freeman, Donaldson, but he, if you're listening to this, then you probably watched a lot of Braves games last year and you saw Ozzy just yeah, Ozzy can't bat. Ozzy can't bat leadoff until he can take a walk. Well, well, right. And and when he was in the minors, his he wasn't geared so much towards hitting home runs. And it's, gr- it's great that he can do that. And you still can count on him to at least hit 12 to 15 mm-hmm. next year. But to get a having Ozzy hitting 260 with 25 home runs, that's not who he's supposed to be, I don't think. I think I that he either. is much more. I think he needs to be about 285, 15 to 17 homers. I think that's his sweet spot, that 17 homer range, 285, and take. He needs to learn that it's okay to take a strike. Yeah, he got he got very greedy as as the season went on, and ha- and hitting all those home runs in, in March, April, and early May, I think um, that just put him in the wrong spot. I think an off season to kind of step away from that and then reapproach. You can you can make a case to where Albies is going to be the the leadoff hitter at the at some point during next year. But yeah, I I don't think that there for right now that there is any reason to pull Acuna out of the leadoff spot. And as I it's structured, that, I would not mind seeing Johan Camargo bat fourth. He's already shown you that he's got a knack for punching in runners when he needs to sixth inning and later. He's pretty good at that. He'll wear he'll wear it on the right center field line just past the second baseman. He wears that spot out. He's a switch hitter, makes good contact, gets on base a lot. I'm fine with that. The idea that the fourth hitter has to be your main power hitter, that's going to be a hard transition to get away from, but that's one of the things where AA and Mike Fast, hopefully, hopefully this should be where Mike Fast really makes his money, where he says, look, man, look what we did in Houston. That's all you need to do. No, that's that's fair. And uh, Snit is uh, 
allegedly going to be operating completely independently, but I, I think that part no of the way. whole thing about him embracing the analytics side of things, like it does kind of have to be fed to him a little bit because I don't, I don't picture that he's going to be sitting there uh, right before bed uh, reading about uh, Swaba or whatever. You know, like I, I think that he's. Um, oh, honey, he, did you see this OBP stat? <laughs> like On wow, base what is, percentage. I, OPS plus, what the hell is that? You know, so, I you don't know, know these know. newfangled kids. But if but if he can get the help, because like you said, he was very very improved, very uh, much this, so. this past year. So, and similarly to to bring this full circle to what we for, first started talking about, um, as Snicker gets a little more comfortable with it, much like uh, future Braves right fielder Nick Castellanos uh, gets more comfortable <laughs> with playing the outfield, uh, the more reps that each of them get in their respective fields, whether it's uh, going back on a ball or lineup construction, whatever it is, uh, hopefully the better they will they will get at it. Hopefully so. We're out of time here this week on the Platinum Sombrero. Don't worry, we'll talk about it a little bit more next week. Before you guys freak out, I'm not getting I'm not killing Snicker. I think he's a fantastic guy. I think he still has a lot of progress to make. But we'll cover that more in the succeeding weeks. Hopefully next week we'll have some stuff that we can talk about a little bit more, some more additions, uh, some more targets per chance. But thank you guys so very much for joining in this week. Hope you enjoyed it. Big thanks to Mike Petriello for coming on the show with us. Really, really enjoyed that and I hope you guys did too. Hit us up on Twitter at TPS underscore podcast. Like the Facebook page, Platinum Sombrero Podcast on Facebook. Hit us up on iTunes. Leave us a review as well. Thank you guys so very much and Doc, I will catch you next week sir yes you will we'll see you right here next week on the platinum sombrero Play guitar. Play guitar. Play guitar. Play guitar. Play guitar. Oh, yeah. Play guitar. 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 Play